welcome to Intentionally Grounded. On episode 5, we have the chance to sit down and talk with Bemidji State Offensive Coordinator Carson Pike. Coach Pike shares with us his journey as a coach from his days working at the junior college level to the high school level and now at one of the premier Division II college conferences in the nation. Coach will also share with us his offensive system, how he develops his RPO game, his philosophy for getting your best athlete the ball, and tips for calling big plays via play action. As always, you can find our podcast updated weekly on Wednesdays at our website, igfootballcoach.com. You can also find us in all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and Anchor. A little bit about your background as a coach and what goes into your coaching profession, and maybe talk about who are some of the coaches who have shaped your philosophy. So certainly, um, you know, coaches have had a huge influence on my life. Um, big reason why I got into it. Um, as I look back, you know, my quarterback coach in high school, Dick Trickle, um, basketball coach, John Anderson, all played major roles in, in forming who I am. I think, um, you know, you don't always necessarily know the, the lessons and the value you're taking from them until a few years down the road. But certainly as I reflect back, um, those are guys that helped shape me and helped push me in the direction of, of my career choice and, and push me to, you know, pass that along and help other people, young men, uh, develop into successful adults. And so I've been fortunate to have been around quite a few, um, certainly the Strohmeyer family, um, Jim, the oldest brother, he, he really recruited me, got me to play college ball and then gave me my first opportunity to coach college ball. Um, and shortly after I GA'd here working with Coach Bolte, another guy who's influenced me quite a bit, I was able to step on the defensive side of the ball for a couple of years here at GA and uh, learn a lot about what they're doing on the side and rules and things like that that I think helped me grow um, as a coordinator. And then was able to get my first full-time job through Jim Strohmeyer's uh, younger brother, Scott, down at Iowa Western, and um, became really good buddies with the youngest brother of the show, Myers, Mike, we still keep in touch. I was able to see him a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, I was, we were able to have quite a diverse crew of coaches, a good buddy of mine, Donnie Woods, the line coach there. Um, certainly keep in touch with him and, and bounce ideas off of each other and things like that. And then we had a couple, um, guys on their way out of coaching or kind of retirement jobs who like six between the two of them, Ted Heath and, uh, Dan Daniels, who unfortunately passed away recently, a year or so ago, but those are all guys that, you know, taught me a lot about how to interact with players, you know, schematics is such a little part of it, um, but how to interact, how to deal with things, how to how to have, carry that relationship that's somewhat like a friendship, but, but you mentor and be strict when you need, so um, I'd say that's one of my favorite things about my my career so far is that I've been surrounded by some really good coaches and, and able to learn and take things from them. Coach, you're now the offensive coordinator at Bemidji State. Uh, what's the transition been like for you, having been around high school-age kids for the past two years and now being the offensive coordinator in one of the toughest conferences in Division II football? Yeah, it's definitely a change. Um, at the end of the day, football is football, but um, the amount of time you're able to spend with the kids, you know, the depth of the playbook, the teaching – the learning through film, all of that certainly uh, goes much deeper when you're able to have kids playing one position, not both ways, um, and things like that. And obviously, being in this league again um, is something I'm very excited about. 
I've always held this league uh, very high in my mind um, and wanted to get back in. And so when Coach Bolte called, I was extremely excited at the opportunity uh, because it's really good football. Um, the kids are here, you know, to play football for the most part. They're not under grand illusions that the NFL is going to come calling. They're here to continue their education and, and play football while they do it. So that's exciting for me. But, um, you know, maturity level is a little different when you're dealing with kids um, at the high school level. So of them come into the program and, and haven't even started puberty yet and uh, <laughs> leave, obviously, as a young man. So um, some of that is is different, just interactions and, and you know, communication is a little bit different with the kids. But at the end of the day, football is football. And if you can create a culture where everybody's dedicated, um, you can teach a lot of football. Coach, what's the biggest adjustment you've had to make since you started coaching football? So you've been at Iowa Western and then Aspen uh, High School, and now you're at Bemidji State. So what, out of those three places, what's changed the most in, in football? Um. You know, a lot of people are talking about it now, culture, but, but how you, how the team interacts, um, I think has changed quite a bit. Um, and you got to coach that just like anything else. Uh, you know, they got to be best friends and whether they may disagree with a person's views or whatever it is, um, they still have to respect each other and understand they're coming in to put that commitment in together for the end goal. And so I think you have to talk a little more about that now than maybe you have in the past. Um, and certainly at the high school level, um, that everybody's here for the same goal, and, and we got to understand that, and, and how we respect each other and how we talk to each other matters in the grand scheme of things. So at some point, you're going to count on that guy to do something to help you accomplish the goal that you want to accomplish. And so if you're beating them down, if you know something's going on in the hallways, whatever it may be, certainly all that matters. And so creating that trust, creating that bond, creating that brotherhood, um, in this culture, in this day and age, I think is really important. And the more you can talk about that or get to the point where you don't have to talk about it, I think sets you up for success. Carson, you were part of some successful programs at Iowa Western, and you also helped turn around um, a high school program in Aspen High School that, that's now on the right track again. What do you think has been the key to the success of these turnarounds? Um, you know, just relating to the players um, and forming that common goal and talking about how to get there um, outside of X's and O's and things like that and um, getting guys bought in, getting guys doing things together into the community um, where they may not okay, well, just volunteering for an hour, two hours, but really what they're doing is spending time with each other and getting to know other people and, and different people. Um, you know, we did a team camp at high school, and that was huge for us. Um, we were able to get up into the dorms at Western State in Colorado you know, pair senior leaders with fresh incoming freshmen that were nervous even to be there. Um, and so really trying to form that tight knit bond that, that can carry you and, and help you win games that maybe you shouldn't or help you win those games that come down to the last drive, things like that. And so, and the, and the same goes in the junior college world too. A lot of the times, you know, the, the there's going to be a lot of talent on a lot of fields, you know, every Saturday. Um, but when it boils down to, you know, the tough times and how do you respond to adversity, typically that's going to be the team that has come together the most, has realized that, you know, our end goal, if we accomplish our end goal, everybody will see successes from it, whether that's moving on to the next level, um, getting a better scholarship opportunity than maybe they already have, 
but understand that if we do this together, okay, the, the end goal for all of us that moving on from junior college will take care of itself. Winning the game will t- take care of itself. Um, so we've, we've talked a lot along the way of where I've been of, of how you accomplish that, what that means to a team, and the value that it brings to a team. Um, so I, I didn't think there's anything more important than that, um, even prior to getting into X's and O's and what you run defensively, what you run offensively, anything like that, um, is really creating that trust and that brotherhood and understanding it takes 40 guys at high school all on the same Friday night. It takes the 63 travelers at Iowa Western every game. Same with Bemidji. It takes the 63 guys that are on the bus. Everybody's going to contribute somehow. When it's your time, are you willing to do what needs to take place for your brother? Carson, you're, you have a great spread offense and a great system. Talk about it a little bit and describe it for our listeners. And, you know, how have you developed it over the years? And is it hard to implement uh, your system, you know, whether it was at Iowa Western or now at Bemidji State? You know, it's kind of a conglomerate um, of a few things I've taken from a lot of places. Um, in base, base terms, I'd say it's a gap scheme run system primarily. Um, not to say that we don't run a bunch of zone as well, but RPO based with a vertical pass game, but we want to be efficient in it. So kind of all across the map, and we want to try to give a bunch of formational looks and a bunch of personnel and be able to get back into our base looks and base formations um, within those personnel. And so at the very beginning of it, I think it is, it's a, it's a little overwhelming for the kids, um, and it takes some time to, to really grasp and, and get on the page with, hey, we're running a concept-based pass system. So you have to know all four positions because you, you could line up in any four. But the benefit to you is then, as a player, is that at any time you can be the guy on the play. And so if you take ownership in learning that concept, then you, we can put you in position to be successful. Um, and we try to, try to help the learning curve by categorizing everything um, and doing a lot of word association within that so that they can always kind of default back to here's what, okay, it's, uh, it's in the church category. Here's what the, here, it's a play action concept. You know what I mean? Um, so we try to, try to pare it down that way and give guys some easy outs as far as getting that word association coming back to it. Um, but at the end of the day, a lot of it falls on the quarterback. And that's who's got to be our smartest guy, call him our point guard. He's got to distribute the ball, especially in an RPO system. You know, what is the defense giving, me, giving you? Get X the ball this play. Hand it off this next play, even though maybe it's not the best look. But hand it off, let the running back try his stuff. Um, deliver it out to the bubble screen or the, the speed out, whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, we want him to think like he's a point guard. And he's got a lot of learning to do on the onset, but that, a lot of that comes with reps and, and things like that. And then we want to keep it really simple for the five guys up front or six when we're using the H back. We want to keep the boss look the same as much as possible, no matter what formations we're putting in. Um, we want to keep the learning as minimal for those guys because that is the most, um, probably on the football team, in my opinion, is those five alignment. And so we want to keep things really simple for them to play fast at the tempo. And another way we kind of restrain ourselves is, is how many words we can use in a play call. And so we want to use four or less um, because we play fast at tempo. And if we start getting into those really long, wordy play calls, you're not going to be able to play fast. If that's the case, let's huddle, 
you know, let's misband it if we want to run some special circumstances, low red zone plays, things like that. But at the end of the day, we want to play fast, and so you have to be good at what you do. You can't overwhelm the kids with a bunch of concepts, a bunch of um, schemes, a bunch of install per week. Hey, we're just going to go out there and be good at what we do, give you some freedom in the routes to sit versus this coverage, continue versus this coverage, all those sorts of things, and then play fast, and we'll just execute. And we'll continue to execute until we wear them out. I don't, I don't feel that the as we get into it that it's all that difficult, but certainly as the as a whole new system comes in, it does take some time. Coach, you talk about your tempo and the way that you use tempo to help you know facilitate a lot of your offense and your RPO game and all the things that go along with it. How do you communicate your plays into your players? Are you a hand signal, a board team, and then does the quarterback then relay it to the offensive line, or is it? all one signal from the sideline and all 11 are looking that way. So we'll do it where everybody but the offensive line is looking uh, over and they all have to know the signals. And we try to segment it out where here, this part of it doesn't mean anything to you as a receiver. You're waiting for this next part. Um, and same with the running backs. Once you've got the protection, once you've got the, the play action protection, the run game, you don't have to pay attention to the rest of the signals. Um, but then the quarterback is responsible to go up to the O-line and use some bucket terms and directionals um, to communicate what they're doing. Then they'll might point it out, and we go. Perfect, Coach. Uh, describe yourself as a, now as a play caller. So if you had a – from somebody who is maybe an opponent of you or something, like somebody who's watching you from the sideline, if they had to describe you as a play caller, how would they describe you, and how has your identity as a play caller evolved over the years and all the places you've been? So I think, obviously, being a former quarterback at the beginning, I was maybe a little bit pass-heavy um, just because that excites me. But um, what I'd strive for is balance, and that's in a lot of directions. Um, everything from gap schemes to zone schemes, um, there needs to be balance. RPO to base runs, where we just want to give the ball to the running back, let him do his thing. I want balance there. I want balance between a quick pass game and a vertical game. Um, I want balance between personnel groupings. So I think if you can have balance in all those areas or at least try to get there, um, that's going to throw a defensive coordinator off, um, especially if you're efficient with getting four yards on a play. So, And then at the end of the day, I want balance between who we're stressing out on defense, whether we're reading backers and which backer we're reading, we're reading different ends, we're reading a three technique at some points. Um, same, and then even get to the third level and read a safety in some of our RPO stuff. So I want to create balance and the stress that those those players are seeing is they're unblocked, but they're in conflict of is it a pass, is it a run play? And then a balance of when the correct times to call shots are and try to do that in a little bit of a unique way, not traditional thinking of you got a big game and we just got across the 50, let's take a shot. I think most defensive coordinators know that that's probably coming at this point. I mean, that's a tendency for a lot of coordinators, and not that I don't do it, but get outside the box a little bit with when we're calling our shot plays and how we call our shot plays and try to one-word package those at times so we can be extremely fast to get those off. Um, and then the, the evolution of it has really been just the coaches I've been around and, and picking their brains and coaches we've been able to go staff meet with and talk some shop with um and, and i would like to ask you know these sorts of questions with them too because 
give me a little insight to why and what your philosophy is, um, maybe I can take a little piece of that. Maybe when it is a certain situation in the game, instead of doing something that that instinct would tell me to do, I try to do something a little bit new to, to keep those D coordinators um, on their toes. So continuing to grow, um, continuing to evolve. You know, um, I haven't been a place yet where our number one play is power, where it probably will be this year. And that's because last year they were really good at it. And the whole line takes a lot of pride in it, and it's a mentality thing. And so we're going to incorporate that quite a bit here at BSU because we're, we're really good at it, and those old linemen love it. So how do we build our PO system off of that, which has been fun for me, learning new stuff, um, expanding my knowledge of the game, and, and so taking that into account as well. You know, what are your players good at? And if they're confident in the play, you have a lot better chance of success than, than maybe not. Coach, you mentioned that uh, Power has been a real big and successful play up at Bemidji uh, prior to you getting here, and it's going to be still something that's important to you guys next year. What makes your Power game so successful? Is there anything that the way that they teach it or any kind of tips into like what kind of fronts they are running it to? What really makes that play so successful from what you understand coming into it? Well, I think Power's been ran here for quite some time. Um, you know, that was one of Coach Tesh's big things. Um, so all the old linemen that have grown up in the system have been running it forever. Um, so that certainly helps. Um, now we have a new old line coach, Coach Olson, um, who does a really good job teaching those guys. And then they just love getting after guys. Um, we also have a pretty special kid at H back who is probably a little undersized to do some of the things he, that he does for us, but he got a lot of heart, a lot of fight, a lot of tenacity. And, and he goes and digs out those ends really well. And so it's really become a mentality. Uh, up here at Bemidji that, hey, this is this is a bread and butter play for us. When it's a knee down, it's a need to get a first down play, this is what we're going with when it's a run play. And then building the RPOs off of it so they can't get extra hats in the box. You know, they can't roll insert a weak side safety if we're running an RPO game off of them. So we should stay pretty even in the count um, if they're not inserting, and that certainly helps helps all the all the processes of the play happen. Um, so just building things off of it and the mentality and then the kids really having confidence in it, knowing, hey, this is what we want to run. The old lineman tells me, the old line guys tell me every day we're scripting and going through stuff, hey, how many power plays we got in today, coach? Well, you know, they obviously want to run it. They want to be the guy that's pulling it. Hey, let's run it right. No, let's run it left. Guards are always arguing. So um, as much as it is schematically a good play and I've been around football a long time, the kids are really bought in, and that confidence, I think, helps a ton. We've talked to a bunch of different coaches this offseason about the power play, and one of the things you, we talk to some coaches, they talk about they always want to run power to the three technique, and then you got some that always want to run it towards the one technique. Do you guys have a preference into what kind of front or what you're looking for to run power towards? We don't uh, get too nitpicky with it, but we do like it to a, to a three technique, just get a real thick deuce block. Um, and we're a big vertical push. We're not trying to trying to push that deuce back to the backside inside block, inside backer. We're trying to push that thing vertical and not let him get over the top. And that pairs well with how we run our zone as well. Uh, we're really thick vertical push team in our inside zone. So those guys really like that and building that wall and then getting the puller out and around it. Um, so I wouldn't say. And it's not that we won't run it out of one or a shade and, and really get more horizontal 
wall built, but our guys really like that thick double team pushing that thing vertical and trying to set the wall. Coach, you you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. You played under Dick Trickle. Um, then you went on as a coach. You coached Jake Waters, who went on to have a great career at Kansas State for Bill Snyder. Uh, what are you looking for in your quarterbacks for your system? You know, that certainly with some of the run game stuff, they have to be an athlete. Um, but number one is cerebral, being a cerebral guy, and then accuracy. Um, not too caught up in, hey, is he 6'3? You know, Jake Waters was a six foot one kid um, with a ton of moxie you know, and really intelligent where we could put things in after Tuesday practice and he watches it on film, he's got that thing grass. Um, and so we're looking more for a guy that just loves football. The first thing I'll do evaluating quarterbacks is pull up their completion percentage. Um, and that tells me a lot, and especially off of how many attempts they've had, right? So if they're a 250 attempt kid in high school and they've got 67% completion percentage, now I'm excited. Um, because obviously that kid has, A, been taught pretty well, and then, B, understands the game a little bit. You turn on his tape, and they're running, you know, quite a few different concepts. He knows how to go through reads. He understands a little bit of the rhythm of the game. Um, So that's the biggest thing we're looking for, and that's the biggest thing we'll monitor all through spring ball, all through fall camp as we evaluate the QBs, and they chart it on their own. We share a Google Doc out with about – 12 or 13 cells for columns that they have to fill in. Um, and the number, first one is completion percentage. Obviously, with an RPO game, you should boost that a little bit because you should be getting some easy throws at times um, into good looks. But we feel if we're over 65%, then we're going to be really successful come Saturday. So I want a thinker, you know, and he has to think fast, obviously, with, with, uh, with going at tempo. And I want a kid that understands the point guard idea of things. You know, not every throw is going to be the home run, go celebrate because you scored a 60-yard touchdown. It's how did you get us into a good play on first down? Or how did you distribute it to get us into a four-plus-yard gain on first down instead of handing it off in a bad box or not taking a gift or not taking a pre-snap bubble, whatever it may be? Um, I want that guy distributing the ball. Coach, you've talked about your RPO game uh, on several occasions here, and let's let's dive a little bit deeper into your RPO game. And, and when you're developing your RPO game, maybe it'd be in the off season, the spring, or, or whenever you choose to install it, what influences the route concepts that you attach to your run game, or what goes really into the DNA of your RPO game? So we really have two types. Um, we have key defender reads, where we're truly reading the guy and his movement pattern um, post-snap. And we also have one high, two high um, RPOs, where if they do roll it pre or post snap, we're going to pull it and throw it irregardless. Um, so it's a little bit of teaching on both ways, but then you also have to be a little bit fluid in, in what we're seeing defensively. Obviously, cover one is a, is a tough deal to run RPOs into, right? They got the box even at least if it's a quarterback run and then they're manned up across the board. So you have to take that into account on, in my mind, keeping guys on the move, right? Stick used to be, the stick concept with the hitch, speed out and vertical used to be really big. Well, now with teams rolling safeties down late, um, playing man coverage, that's not as good. So keep those routes on the move versus static routes. And then I think it's ever-evolving, too, where defenses are catching up, they're figuring out different ways to defend it, so you really have to go and look 
you know, at tape every year at the end of the year and say, how do we best mitigate some of the stuff that we're seeing? Um, things we've gone to recently, two-step speed outs with the outside guy blocking. Um, a lot of teams are running the arrow screen with an H-back, running them on an arrow with the receivers blocking. But keeping those guys on the move when you're seeing in coverage, sitting in zone, some of your static concepts are going to be better than others. Um, but I still prefer to keep guys on the run so that when they catch the ball, they're already moving versus just kind of, you know, standing there essentially and maybe getting a kidney shot. Um, and then, you know, we use these pretty interchangeably. Uh, all of our screen tags will be, or not screen tags, but perimeter tags will be interchangeable with our power scheme, our inside zones, things like that. Um, but if you're starting day one, I say you look at the worst possible situation and then build it from there, right? So worst possible situation, you're running power with some sort of a tag and you've got man coverage with a loaded box. How do we build out those routes to beat them? Do you put in a little pick play or a man beater on the side with a single receiver route um, and try to identify things that way and then move into the easier looks that you may see versus saying, well, this would be really good against cover three, but what if we don't get cover three? What if you call it into something that's not great, right? So start with worst case scenario, talk it through in the staff room and, and kind of build it out that way. Coach, talk about what practice looks like for you as you incorporate RPOs. Uh, what does it look like on a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday uh, as you work through the week and, and as you're implementing your game plan? Yeah, so we'll do mesh drill every day, um, which is pretty common. But within the mesh drill, we're always going to have a coach or maybe another player, student assistant, somebody being our key defender. And a lot of those times we'll even bring the receivers down that are part of the RPO concept to run their route, to run their screen tag with the quarterbacks. And that's going to be an everyday deal. Earlier in the fall camp season, things like that, we're obviously going to have more time with it. Um, as we start getting into middle late seasons, you're going to go to five minutes a day and just roll through the stuff. But we want, we want a read guy for the running back. We want a read guy for the, you know, as, as far as the running back gets the ball, who he's reading in the certain plays. Got a key defender read for our quarterback, and then we've got our receiver added in um, to run whatever the perimeter tag would be. And so, obviously, with the RPOs, there's quite a bit of footwork, right? If you're, if you're pulling it to throw, if you're pulling it to triple option with a bubble, um, all those things need to be repped consistently or constantly, excuse me. And then on top of it, you got to think about things like quarterback may not alter the laces, make sure they're not throwing the ball with the laces. Um, but we'll spend early week, probably 10 minutes, Monday, Tuesday, we go to five, Wednesday, we go to five on average, Thursday, we're paired back on our team stuff. So we'll spend some extra time less at tempo, less about reps and more about talking things through versus the specific coverages we're going to see that week um, within that drill. And then a lot of what we do as well is, is film that with a wide behind. We'll also film seven on seven with a wide behind. We'll also film all our team with a wide behind as well um, because I think that gives us a really good look for how we're trying to exploit those defenders or those zones in our RPO game. Whereas if you're just filming the box, obviously sometimes you're reading a guy outside of it and you can't get a great look from wide times. What did he really do? Why did you do this? But from behind at a wide, you can get a really good look for 
defining your rules? Is it two steps towards the box and that's when you pull the throw? Is it one step, however you want to design it? But you get a really good feel from that wide behind on what that kid is doing and, and how to teach the QBs. And they get a good look because that's essentially their viewpoint, right? So that's one way we go about it. Um, obviously, having film prior from the previous seasons is a big way we talk about it, try to watch it a bunch. There's a lot of gray area at times in RPOs. And so what's your answer there? Is your answer just to give it? Is your answer just to pull and throw? Is your answer to go to the gift side? All those things, obviously, the quarterback needs to know prior to walking out there. Um, so we spend a lot of time because it is, a, it is a big part of our offense. All right, Coach, we're going to shift over to some more situational-based questions. And we'll just say, hypothetically, uh, the first situation, it's first and 10 in the middle of the field on your own 30-yard line. And let's say it's early in the first half. And if you're required to call a shot play for a big gain, what play are you calling? And walk us through your thought process process you use before making such a call yeah so what that's going to come off of is what are we doing well in the run game um and what have we game planned in the run game so right now we're really good at power we're going to use a seven-man protection pull the guy and really try to take advantage of one of the third level defenders um right now what we're seeing a lot in the league is quarters coverage with a safety insert and their rule basically more often than not, is as the quarterback opens to a mesh, if they see his back, that safety is now the insert. Um, so what we'll try to do is get that guy influenced into inserting and then run a concept or maybe a choice route to the single receiver side or maybe the slot if it's a three-by-one formation and try to get up on that safety's toes and give the kid a three-way go at receiver. Um, one thing we're messing with quite a bit this spring. So he has a chance to... He's coming off the ball hard. If he gets to 12 yards and he hasn't really broken the cushion, he'll just sit that down, come right back down on the spot route. He gets off the ball and he's, he's uh, closed that cushion quite a bit. Now he's just reading leverage. Corner's inside. He's going to step at his leverage and take a fade. Corner's head up the outside. He's going to step to the outside and take a pulse. And so we'll try to influence who we get into the box with a hard, heavy play action and then give the receiver a chance to, to make himself right, essentially. And so that's probably going to be one of our better play calls um, and play action shot plays is giving freedom to those guys out on the edge to kind of make the, the route right, if you want to say it that way. And then a heavy play action with the, with the uh, quarterback waiting on the kid to decide his route, essentially. Coach, we'll assume you just scored a big touchdown. Uh, you're within two. You've got to go for two. Uh, what is the best play you're calling? It's a good one. So, um, I like some unique formations, especially for two-point plays. Um, dictate the hash that you put it on because you can, um, whether it's even left middle or right middle, um, and try to get in some unbalanced formations, even covered up or potentially, um, you know, cover guys up at receiver as well. And so one of my favorite is a 20 personnel look, um, two backs in the backfield, and then you have trips out to one side with the middle receiver uh, on the ball and covered up. And then running some sort of quarterback run game with a bubble um, or some sort of screen out there. You can motion your bar out there and let him be the bubble guy and have quarterback power on or quarterback counter um, and kind of dictate it off of where they put in their corner. If they're going to leave their corner to a weak side run fit, then we're going to try to run at him. 
if they're going to bounce the corners over and play both safeties in the box, then we're probably going to motion the R out and let him be a bubble screen guy with, with the quarterback run on. Um, if they're going to stay light and play off, then we're going to run it with R. Um, but definitely some sort of gap scheme with, with something attached and out for the quarterback. And again, trying to give a unique look uh, formationally for them. Um, another favorite of mine is, is 12 personnel empty. And getting that all out of the backfield, you have all your counter or your gap scheme run games with any perimeter type of attachment that you want. But putting those guys in conflict to where are we going to play the box or are we going to play receivers? If they're going to leave us with one-on-one matchups, we'll find a way to get our best guy maybe in the slot and get him matched up on a safety or a nickel and run a taper fade with a quarterback power or some sort of variation like that. But that, that would be my answer to the two-pointers. Coach, just to follow up on that quick, uh, you talk a lot about getting your best players the ball. When you had Geronimo Allison at Iowa Western, was it? did you have to become extremely creative on ways to get him in space with the football? And how, how did people try to take away your best players? Yeah, he was, you know, we did have to get a little creative. He was certainly uh, the guy everybody was worried about. And so we used him on the backside of a lot of formations and, and really just asked the question, are you going to play two on him? two guys on them, or are you going to play one guy on them? If they were going to play one guy on them with no help, then we were just going to go back there all day, and we'd set them up with, you know, five-yard speed out, five-yard speed out, five-yard speed out until that kid crept down. And then all of a sudden, five-yard slant, five-yard slant, and then he's getting a little tighter and inside, and we'd use double moves. Um, obviously, he could also win routes down the field when he was getting one-on-one in just the straight pass game. Um, but when they wanted to go with two guys on him, we would bounce them to the strong side of the formation. Um, obviously limit the package that we ran out of that to limit his having to learn everything. Um, but get him in the, get him at number two in trips. Um, and now what are they going to do? How do they double him there? But we did like him on the backside still then. If they're going to play two on them, they're going to be like the box or man coverage over the field. And now we had also had some other guys that were pretty talented out there as well. So we could take advantage of that. Um, but I really like your best guy at the single receiver side because they are in conflict. Do we have to play two on them? And if they do, chances are good. You're, you're pretty solid in the run game. Um, if they're going to try to single them up, then, then it's time to go to work for him and give him some choice routes, um, give him some post routes, some vertical routes at times, and then all the attachments off of uh, the run game. If they're going to play way off, we'll just throw a five-yard speed out over there all afternoon until, until you want to change or – or we'll just keep doing it. Um, but he's certainly a tool to use, and the more you can bounce those guys around in the formation, obviously the more deadly uh, you can become as, as an offense, and that, that all comes back to their learning and their willingness to, to be that guy. Great stuff, Coach. Uh, the last question we have for you is, is non-football related. Um, if you had to pick a walk-up song as a, if you were a pro baseball player or a professional, uh, professional wrestler, what would it be and why? So that's pretty easy for me. That is Radar Love by Golden Earring. Um, Fantastic. Reason being, <laughs> reason being is that, uh, as I went to all the Little League games, that was my father's song that he used to listen to before football games. So going to Little League games, um, he'd always play that one and we'd, sing it together and get all riled up and so that actually carried on with me through high school um through college and and i actually still listen to that before every game today 
That is great stuff, Coach. Well, we appreciate it a lot. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for having me, guys. If you found this podcast helpful, please take the time to go and leave a review, either on Stitcher or iTunes, and let us know what you think.